Welcome to Podcast, the show that puts the positive in podcasting. Our program is created by and for people living with HIV, and we're here to explore HIV research in ways that matter. We're accurate, but not clinical. We want to hear and tell stories about what new research means for us, for our health, our love lives, and our relationships. We're based in Toronto, but global in outlook, and we're produced at the Centre for Urban Health Solutions of St. Michael's Hospital by Universities Without Walls. We're podcast, and we're bringing HIV research to life. Today, you'll hear the views and ideas of our podcast guests, and while we respect their expertise, they do not reflect the views of St. Michael's Hospital or Universities Without Walls. I'm your host, James Watson, a person living with HIV and a community-based research coordinator. I'll be your guide for today's journey into HIV research. As a person living with HIV, I'm often mocking HIV and engaged in gallows humor with my friends. I think it's healthy for a person living with a stigmatized condition to own their narrative and turn it on its head and throw it back into the world in a way that suits them. There's power in humor. And in this episode, we're going to explore that power. And in particular, the power of stand-up comedy to fight stigma and its potential as a therapeutic tool. My guests today are James Tyson, a queer, HIV-positive, gender non-binary stand-up comic and actor out of New York City, and David Grenier, a counselor, author, stand-up comic, and founder of Stand Up For Mental Health, a program for teaching stand-up comedy to people with mental health issues. Let's chat first with James Tyson. James studied theater at New York University's Titch School of the Arts at the Atlantic Acting School, and after graduating in 2009, they dabbled in stand-up comedy and improv. But it wasn't until 2018 that James dove into the stand-up scene head-on and has been killing it ever since. They could be seen in clubs all over New York's comedy scene and pretty much every Brooklyn gay bar with a stage and a microphone. James is also a vocal advocate for comedy spaces that support women and LGBTQ plus comics. So let's start with a laugh. Uh, But no, I'm, I'm undetectable. It means you can't detect the virus in my system. Uh, I can't give it to anybody, even. I could ejaculate inside each and every one of you. And you wouldn't catch anything more than a good time. Yeah. Yes. And herpes. Yes. Science is still chasing after herpes. James Tyson. So, welcome to Podcast. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. So, I want to know a little bit about uh, your personal journey. So, you're you're queer, you're HIV positive, you're gender non-binary. Mm-hmm. You explore all of these very <laughs> real triple threat. Yes, you explore all of these uh, uh, very personal aspects of yourself on stage and and through stand up, no less. I mean, you know. That's, uh, I mean, how did you get to a place where you could be so vulnerable in an environment that's so, well, can be so brutal and unforgiving? 
Um, going through sobriety actually kind of helped with that. Also, I've been, I'm 32 and I've been performing in New York for 14 years now. So it just gets a point where, um, I don't know, I don't have a good filter. I never had a good filter. Mm. So between, um, going through the rigmarole of like group therapy and stuff that comes along with getting sober from alcohol, um, I feel like I'm constantly at like a, an, uh, an overshare uh, state of mind. And that just happens to kind of work sometimes for stand up. <laughs> right. And is there one aspect of yourself that's easier or more challenging to talk about on stage than another? Um, depends on the crowd, to be honest. Um, in New York, I would say that uh, I'm mostly pretty lucky that there's not really any thing that I feel like you know, if it's like a, a crowd full of tourists or like Midwestern, like, you know, people who've embarked into a comedy show and they have no idea what they're getting into. And their idea of comedy is Jim Gaffigan, who I love, but I am not. Um, you know, and then I come out with my gender non-binary and HIV jokes. They're very alarmed. Um, right. <laughs> right. So uh, no, it just depends on the audience. Less right, so on how I feel about anything. Right. Fair enough. Uh, what's the experience like for you after a performance, like the next day? Is, is performing this material that's so close to the bone therapeutic for you? Um, it was at some point, and I think it still is. Uh, there comes a point in performing your material where um, it's, it's, it's your thing. It's like your dog and pony show, and um, you love your dogs and ponies. But, um, you know, they don't have the magic and allure that they do for whatever the crowd is. So, like, <laughs> for at this, I'm at a point now where, um, especially with the HIV material, which I've been doing now for a little over, I, I can think about a year and a half, um, I'm still tremendously grateful when it goes well. Because every time, there's still, when I first introduce it, um, this moment of, like, dead silence, the room dies. and um, so I'm still very grateful whenever that turns back around. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, there's less, um, I'm less scared of it now, which has actually made it funnier. I think when it first came out, it was, um, as I have been told by older stand-up comics, that it was more storytelling. Um, and now that there's less uh, at stake with for me in in it um i i have more of a track record of like oh no i know this is funny i know we're gonna get there um i'm less like nervous about the audience's nervousness um right right so i don't know it's all it's just much more like well it's the job i i'm, I'm i don't want to say i'm detached because it still affects people it just i'm more in control of it right I mean, so, I mean, as a comic to me, but it's, I've been looking at your material and I've never seen you live, but just, just, uh, um, through video, you know, you have this in sort of intoxicating blend of like gentle charm and, and poignant rage. Right. Oh so <laughs> to me, I'm going to put mean, that on my tombstone in, in intoxicating charm of, of what was it? Gentle poignant rage, rage, poignant rage. rage. Yeah. yeah. That's, that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, and it sort of creates this, is this, mix of tension and joy at the same time and I, I I'm just wondering if you could talk a bit about how you see yourself as a performer and your style of comedy for, for those who haven't seen it um I think it's very much it's 
it's less intentionally crafted to be that way on my part and more that's just who I am on a daily basis. So much of stand-up for me is I I just prop my whole family processes things with humor. It's like the primary coping mechanism. And then life itself is also just kind of difficult. Um, so it's it's not even that I've like intentionally because like made my set that way that just really what i'm like on a daily basis mm, which is oscillating between trying to like come to terms with people being difficult or life being hard or getting a disease or whatever it is and processing it through humor while also just having kind of a constant low simmer rage it's just right. who i am <laughs> right okay so i mean do you think that comedy i mean maybe it's not intentional but do you think that comedy can be an effective way to combat stigma 100% yeah especially something like hiv stigma where there's truly no i mean if anybody has a reaction that is steeped in stigma or judgment it's really just ignorance at this point that they don't know you know, where the medication is at or what life with HIV is like. It's especially something like that where it's really just a matter of like, oh no, here's the information. This is what it's like now. And I can give it to you in a funny way. Right, right. It disarms them, I guess. I mean, have you been approached by someone in the audience after a show or even during a show and and and, and uh, uh, either thanked you or was enraged by you? Uh, it's a mix. Uh, it's people... Uh, a lot of like, oh, that's, the, you know, I love what you're doing. I love that you're taking that on. It's actually um, the handful of people who have approached me with thoughts about it that weren't offended, but were like tense about it have actually just been older gay men who, you know, for them, I'm 32, like I said. So I, I was born in 87. I really wasn't an adult during the worst years of the AIDS crisis. Um mm -hmm. And I try to be sensitive to people who were alive and affected and lost friends and so forth and so on. Um, really, and it wasn't even that they were offended. There was one gentleman who approached me and said, um, you know, I've, I've, I think for 20 years they had been positive and um, they had just tested uh, as detectable again for the first time in, I think, 10 years or something. And they were personally very like upset about it and um felt that i they weren't even like you're doing it wrong but they were like you be aware that this happened to me and so the idea that like oh it's all fine is maybe not um and i try to steep what i'm saying in my set with like as long as i have access to health care and like things stay, you know, ideal. Like I, I try not to be like, it's not a problem anymore, but that's really the only time someone has approached me. So it seems to me, and, and I could be wrong, so correct me if I'm wrong, that you've sort of carved out a space or a place for yourself as a defender of the marginalized in many ways. Um, and uh, so as you continue on that path, and, and uh, uh, do you think that you have a social responsibility now to challenge and educate audiences, or are you just doing comedy? Oh, both. I mean, I don't have power in this industry yet. So that's a big, I mean, right now, especially as I build my career, um, I, I feel like I have to stay focused on, on comedy. It's, it, again, it just depends on the audience. Like 
when I do my shows at Club Coming, I will do like the first half of it is like stand up. It's comedy. It's and then I'll usually take it to like gay church by the end, and it's much <laughs> preachier. And my mother just the other day was like, "James, make sure you're not just soapboxing." And um, <laughs> so, I mean, it's definitely I'm still learning. I was actually just saying I just saw a comic named Shaliwa Sharp the other day. I was on a show with her. She's been doing this for ten years, and her joke per minute ratio is insane. She's so effing funny. And I was just saying to her, like, oh gosh, like how how do you get that? Like I have so many opinions that I I keep I keep falling into this and and this like educating thing. And so it's it's a constant uh, I right. don't know, balancing act for me. In your opinion, uh, uh would would you think only those belonging to a stigmatized community or marginalized community can be allowed to make jokes at it ex- at its expense? Uh, I, I think there's truth in what you're saying. I think that's not quite the whole story. Mm. Uh, it's the at their expense thing. That's the caveat in what you just said. It's whether it's punching up or punching down. And I think it's pretty clear when someone's telling a joke about a community where they don't know anyone from that community. Right. They don't, they don't have any sense of, I mean, Dave Chappelle and his trans jokes, it just seems clear to me that Dave Chappelle doesn't know any trans people or when white people get on stage and start talking about black people. And it's clear that like you, have you ever met a person of color in your entire life? And if you can't, I don't think you have to be of that community, but I think you're probably not going to write a nuanced, interesting take on any material that you don't have a personal connection to i think any whatever the subject is if you only know it through like clickbaity headlines for articles you didn't read you're not going to write a good joke about that and you're probably going to unnecessarily hurt feelings and then if your reaction when people are like hey that is kind of damaging that line of thinking to that community if your reaction then is like we had the joke and then i don't i don't i don't know what we're doing so you have uh, like a unique lived experience with HIV disclosure. Um, in many ways, uh, you know, you are an expert in guerrilla disclosure. You're disclosing uh, uh, <laughs> your status repeatedly under very stressful circumstances uh, for, for quite some time now. So if there was one piece of advice you would give to someone who's considering disclosing their HIV status who hasn't, what would that be? No, if you need something from the person you're telling and what it is you need from. So if you, which is why I waited with my mother to tell my mother, because I did not want to put my mother in a position of being Shirley MacLaine in terms of endearment. (laughs) I didn't want her to have to feel like it's six o'clock. Where's the shot? Would you need the shot? Where's your medicine? Like I didn't want that. I wanted Whereas with, I told my sister much earlier when I was, I needed emotional support. And God, I love my mother. I couldn't take care of my mother on this issue when I needed to be taken care of. Right. So know what you need from people emotionally, physically, financially, in health insurance wise, before you tell them and be very careful with it. In stand-up, I need them to laugh. So... I know that, and I've got a whole plan on how to make that happen. Thank you, James Tyson. Uh, 
Um, so we're having a good time. I want you to hold on to that feeling as I go into the bulk of my set. Um, remember that, right? Uh, and I'll just tell you, spoiler alert, that um, before I go into it, I'm fine, okay? I'm, I'm healthy, I have nice skin, things, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. Uh, having said that, uh, uh, two years ago, I tested positive for HIV. Ooh, killed the room. <laughs> Yeah, um, that's nerve-wracking to talk about because uh, I don't know y'all. On the one hand, you uh, might be totally up to date with the science. Uh, you know it's not a death sentence. On the other hand, you might uh, be stuck in 1985, you know? And definitely someone in this room uh, is looking at me freaking out right now, right? Being like, holy fuck, you guys, fuck. It's one of the straight dudes. <laughs> She's like, you can, no, it's, that's, not, that's not funny. That's not, go back, go back to the, the trans person. That's the, that was jokes. There, that's, I'm, I'm trying to be an ally, but this is too much. You know, there's like two bathrooms here. Uh, he's touching the mic. Like, am I about to get HIV from this fucking gay guy? You know? And I'm sorry, but, uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> I'm sorry. Chances are good you all already got it. So, I hope you like the Rent soundtrack and being told how brave you are, because... <laughs> that's your life now. <laughs> When I first heard James's act, you know, it was like a weight lifted off my shoulders. It was so good to hear someone living with HIV make fun publicly. And what a brilliant way to slap down stigma. James has created this, this magical moment where a group of strangers has come together and are laughing and clapping and cheering them on. I mean, this might be a person's first introduction to someone living with HIV, and here they are being schooled right, and loving every minute of it. It makes my heart sing. So let's shift gears a bit. I reached out to my next guest because he runs this inspiring and innovative program called Stand Up for Mental Health. And while not directly related to HIV, I think it's a model easily adapted for people living with HIV. David Grenier himself has depression and is featured in the Voice Award-winning documentary Cracking Up. David has received numerous awards for his work, including a Champion of Mental Health Award and a Meritorious Service Medal from the Governor General of Canada. He was also recognized as one of the 150 Canadian difference makers in mental health. David is a much sought after keynote speaker and works with mental health organizations in Canada, the US and Australia to train and perform with stand up for mental health groups in dozens of cities. So let's start again with a laugh. I, I have a mental illness myself, and uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of, lot of public stigma out there. We recently had a mental health clinic put in in, in our area. I live um, uh, near the PNE. We had a, it was great, you know, big mental health clinic, but there was a group of residents. They were outraged. They did not want this clinic. They were, they were, you know, these people are going to, these crazy people are going to come into our neighborhood and do what? 
art therapy? You know, I can just see them attacking pedestrians with glue sticks and macaroni. Stay in your house. There's been an outbreak of collage. Okay, David. So, uh, welcome to podcast. Thank you. Um, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Your program for your program, Stand Up for Mental Health, really resonates uh, with me, and as I'm sure it will with a lot of my listeners. Uh, as a person living with HIV, the battle against stigma is real. I mean, you can't outrun it. Mm. Um, it's often best to confront it. And using stand-up comedy as a mm. stigma-busting and even therapeutic tool like, is a really brilliant concept to me. And I'm wondering if you could just give us and the audience a quick overview of how stand-up for mental health works. I've run this program in over 50 cities in Canada, the U.S., and Australia in partnership with organizations like mental health organizations in those cities. Mm -hmm. And the way it works is that we have a series of classes where people learn how to take incidents from their own lives and turn them into stand-up comedy. So people come in and talk about, I mean, that's the great thing is that people talk about some really painful things and they turn them into stand-up comedy. Now, I'm a therapist and I totally believe in therapy, but the difference is that in therapy, you tell people, you tell your therapist, you know, your story and the therapist listens and, you know, nods and responds. In stand-up comedy, you take your story and you do something creative with it. You tell it, but you turn it into comedy and then you tell a theater full of 300 people who are laughing and applauding and telling you how great you are. So it's a wonderful way of dispelling that internalized stigma that you feel. Because you go, wow, you know, I just told these people about, I don't know, the time I thought I was Jesus and maxed out my credit card. And they think I'm hilarious. And, and plus, the ability to make people laugh is a huge confidence builder. Um, I remember, um, actually, let, let me back up even more. So what gave me the idea for Stand Up for Mental Health is that for the past 20 years, I've taught a stand-up comedy course at Langara College in Vancouver, just a community college. It's a night course. It has nothing to do with mental illness. i sorry, nothing to do with mental health. But occasionally, I would see people come through and have a life-changing experience. Remember, one woman had a fear of flying. And the day after our show, she had to get, get on a plane. And she said, my fear was gone. I felt like once I'd done stand-up, I could do anything. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be awesome to give this to people who wanted to do comedy, but who also wanted to have a life-changing experience? And in previous interviews, uh, uh, you've said that, and I love this, you've said that you can't change the past. Right. Um, uh, but by taking, taking on challenging life situations through humor, you can rewrite your own story. And I, and I love this idea of rewriting your own story mm -hmm. through comedy. Um, could you speak more about this? And, and is this, can this be therapeutic? Okay. So what I say is that, yeah, that's right. You can't change the past, obviously. But you can tell your story through comedy, you can take control of your story by telling it your way and putting your own ending on it. So in other words, you get the last laugh. And obviously it still doesn't change the past, 
but there's something really therapeutic about taking those situations where you were um, um, abused or treated badly and being able to go, ha ha, you know, I get, because usually in those situations, there are things people wish they'd said or done. Right. They didn't. So here you are, you get to say or act out those things in front of an audience that is laughing and cheering. So, and once again, so in therapy, you know, part of the idea is that in therapy, you try to take control of your story. Well, this is one step further. That's great. Um, and how does disclosure play in the process, I wonder? Like, do, do students come into the group ready to publicly disclose their challenges with mental health, or, or does the program try to ready people for that disclosure? Well, everyone that takes the program is kind of self-selected, so they know what it's about, and they're ready to go. I mean, obviously, there are certain things that they don't want to disclose, and that's fine. I don't force anyone to disclose anything, but... Like I say, they're ready for this. So it's it's a program that people need to know what they're getting and want to be a part of. So it would never work in the context of a treatment center where they said, okay, you know, this week we we're doing art therapy, next week we're doing stand-up comedy, because stand-up comedy isn't for everyone. And I think it would be incredibly damaging to be forced to do this kind of thing if you didn't want to. Why do you think that stand-up comedy? This is all a bit new to me. I mean, I, yeah. I it's 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 uh, really refreshing and enlightening to me to see stand-up mm -hmm. comedy work this way. Um, but why do you think it works so well as a way to fight stigma? Um, I think it works so well as a way to fight stigma because people come to our shows, and often the stereotypes that you hear or that people have about people with mental health issues or mental illnesses or whatever the hell we're calling it these days. Um, you know, we think of people you know, who are dangerous or whacked out or useless to society or weak or whatever. And here they are, they come and see people on stage funny and friendly and likable and courageous. All the things that we don't associate with someone with a mental health condition. Remember uh, one show, I heard two people talking after the show, and one of them said, man, that guy with schizophrenia was hilarious. And how often do you hear hilarious and schizophrenia in the same sentence? Yeah, yeah, very true. So I'm gonna go to the left field here. So, so uh, <clears throat> the comedian, in the comedian Hannah Gadsby's award-winning Netflix special. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and she has ADHD and autism. Right. Um, she says, I built a career out of self-deprecation. I don't want to mm -hmm. do that anymore because mm -hmm. you do understand what self-deprecation means from somebody who already exists in the margins. It's mm -hmm. not humility. It's humiliation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of a tough question, but what are your thoughts on people with mental health issues making self-deprecating jokes about themselves? I think it's really important. Um, and I actually disagree. I think there's um, a difference between being self-deprecating and humiliating yourself. Um, those are two completely different things. I think the fact that you're able to laugh at yourself in a healthy way um, is incredibly powerful and um, gives you, once again, it gives you control over your story. And it's a great way of um, owning your part in things. 
Right, right. Okay. So does this course uh, do you, uh, align or complement like a student's clinical care? Like, uh, uh, sure. Um, yeah. I mean, you know what I, 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 you know, I tell people stand up for mental health. I think it's really therapeutic, but it's not a substitute for therapy or meds or art therapy or whatever people are doing. I mean, often, com at least the comics I know, and I know some comics, um, uh, could require a lot of support and self-care. Yeah. Um, they can be highly strung people, and and, uh, and 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 often a troubled life makes for better material than a happy and stable one. Mm -hmm. um, so, does does the program offer some support to to the students in some way, like if they have a bad show or something like that? Um, first of all. Uh, the class is like a support group. So, uh, you know, what I tell people is that, um, uh, so, in, you know, in terms of self-esteem, one of the things you need is you need good social support. And what we do is we give people an immediate support group of people who have been through what they've been through and who are going through the class with the same goal. So it's a really great bonding experience and of course we always you know check in before every class and people you know say this is going you know this is what's going on in my week so there's there's a lot of built-in support and in terms of having a bad show um we stack the deck in their favor so right. we try the jokes out in class so we know the jokes are going to work um, also, if people have a hard time memorizing, they can go on stage with like little index cards that they can read from. Plus, the audiences that come to our shows, they're all mental health audiences. So they get it. They're right. there for the comics. They want them to succeed. And I think that makes a big difference because people know what they're getting. I think it would be not work nearly as well if we just, say, went into a comedy club. I mean, we do some shows at comedy clubs but we promote them on our own. They're not part of the comedy club calendar. Right. So I think if you just went into a comedy club and just did this and people didn't know what they were coming for, I think that could be a problem. Right, right. Um, yeah, I've seen some of you, you know, I've, seen, I've watched a lot of your videos and, and uh, the camaraderie and support within the group is really uh, lovely mm -hmm. to see. Um, so in HIV, we put a really high value on engaging what we call peers, um, other people living with HIV and uh, in research and healthcare and support. Um, and, and you're a person who's living with depression and out about it. Um, uh, so in many ways, you are a peer and relatable to the student Absolutely. program. Um, do you think that you need to be a peer to implement a program like what you're doing successfully? Well, it sure helps. Because um, what I tell the the, um, the class on the first day is I say, so I'm one of you. You know, I have depression. Um, I've been in psych wards. I've had tons of therapy. I'm on meds. And I think it really helps people to understand that I'm coming from where they're coming from. I think it would be a much harder sell, personally, to go in there as someone who didn't have that experience. Right. And, and are you... Like, do you, is it just you? Like, are you doing all of this on your yeah. own? <laughs> like, that's pretty. Well, um, once again, so I run the classes, but, you know, in Vancouver, we have a board of directors. And so, you know, there's that help for me. And plus right. in other cities, I'm working with an organization who has resources and logistical support. So basically, for example, the group I did in Austin, 
they recruited the comics, they provided a Skype classroom, they um, got a venue for the show, they promoted the show. So my responsibility is to teach the class. So I don't do all that other stuff. I see. Okay. So what have some of your students experienced by taking the class? I mean, can you give me an example of, of, of uh, what uh, your students might experience from taking your class? Um, well, I think they experience, so I think they come in on the first day, um, they're nervous, they're apprehensive, they don't know if they can do it. And as they go through the course, they start to develop a sense of confidence. And once they've done their first show, it's a real shift because they go, wow, you know something, I can do this. Right. Right. That's great. So have there been any surprises along the way, things about the program that you decided to change or adapt or, or anything that surprised you in particular? Not really. I mean, I keep getting better at teaching the program, mm. um, but I don't know. I mean, there, there hasn't been anything major that I've had to change over the years other than just to continue, continue doing it. Right. So how do you think this program, um, this is my own selfish interest, of course, how do you think this program could be, uh, the program model could be adapted to serve other stigmatized conditions? So you're talking about HIV. Basically. I am. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So, you know, I think it's, it's a similar model. So you have someone who is, um, so, I mean, in terms of stand up for mental health, I'm also the perfect person to run it because I'm a counselor. I'm an instructor, I'm a stand-up comic, and I have depression. And I think in terms of running it for the HIV community, first of all, you would need someone to run it who had HIV and was a peer. Um, Is it one, sorry? Yes. It was a peer, essentially. Yep. Um, so you, you'd need, you'd absolutely need to have that. Um, and then um, you'd need to basically have someone who's a comedian, someone who could facilitate groups, um, and it would be the same sort of model. People would be talking about, so this has been my experience with HIV, um, this is what I've gone through, and turning it into comedy. All right, well, thank you. So, so what's next for Stand Up For Mental Health? Or are you just gonna keep on trucking? Keep on trucking. Um, uh, currently, I, I'm running a group in um, uh, Kamloops, group in New York State, I'm about to start a group in Victoria and Norwich, Connecticut. Um, and also I do a lot of shows and presentations on my own at, at conferences and events. So the goal is always to expand all of that. Right. Well, I wish you all the best. It's a, it's a, it's an inspiring program and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. I mean, when it comes to crime, I feel way safer around people who hear voices and think they're the supreme ruler of the universe. <laughs> And put it this way, when you're managing 50 million galaxies, you're way too busy to steal my car. <laughs> you know, they're like, dude, we travel at light speed, why would we want your minivan? <laughs> A big podcast thank you to my guests, James Tyson and David Grenier. Although both comedians have different approaches to stand-up, the effect is equally as exciting and powerful, and of course, hilarious. Thank you both for the inspiration. 
and for shining a light on such serious issues with joy and laughter. Production services are provided by the Ontario HIV Treatment Network.